everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here with Andrew Vontz from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We are going through a blow-by-blow breakdown of the Japan Cup and Tour of Veneto. I'm kidding. We're not doing that. But we're just going to have a little random ramble about Gravel Worlds, um, the gravel scene back here in the U.S., where we see it going, a little bit of U.S. domestic um, big-picture road race talk where does that fit in is that even like is there even an appropriate place for it um in, in 2023 and beyond as well as a little bit of transfer gossip andrew do you want to talk about your podcast for a second before we get into it yeah as you can tell it's fall the leaves are changing and we have a cornucopia of topics ready for you today here on this podcast and i am the host of the choose the hard way podcast it is a podcast where my guests share stories about how hard things build stronger, more resilient human beings. This week, my guest is Bart Elmore, who is an environmental historian, and he is the author of A History of Monsanto. And we get into some really interesting topics, particularly talking about glyphosate, Roundup, and uh, other things that you might want to know about food and things you put in your body. He was a guest on the Joe Rogan podcast about a year ago. If you've listened to that episode, we go even deeper in this interview. So come check it out. We're at choosethehardway.com. And you can also find us everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Uh, I also have an essay coming out relatively soon in the Why Is This Interesting newsletter. And we're going to be talking about the topic of that, of that uh, essay, which is It's about the spirit of gravel, and we're definitely going to be talking about the spirit of gravel here today, aren't we, Spencer? Yes, we are, or uh, maybe a perceived lack of it. But man, man, there was a big spirit of gravel discourse. I feel like you were, you bought stock in spirit of gravel, the phrase, like early, you know, like way back when we even first doing these podcasts, like a year ago almost. And then now those options are, are paying off big time for you. That was a very highly used phrase in the week after the gravel world championships. If anyone missed it, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine what you could have been doing to have missed the gravel world championships, but Johnny Vermeesh beat Daniel Oss and then Matthew Vanderpool came in a few minutes later in the, in the, what was left of the main group in third place. Um, little, maybe like the layman was surprised by that result, but, um, with such a chaotic race without big trade teams, it's always going to be hard for the favorite. And Gianni Vermeesh, as we discussed last episode, is a very good rider and could probably dominate gravel if he wanted to. Um, but instead, he's a somewhat anonymous road rider, which just shows you the depth of talent on the road. And then um, we, we just call her PFP in the English-speaking world because we're all so afraid to mispronounce her name. But um, Pauline Ferrand Prevot won the women's event i mean just like a world-class rider what andrew she's world champion in the mountain bike and cyclocross currently and then now gravel and then i also believe she's a former world road race champion as well so just like a super round probably one of the more underrated women cyclists today um and then there was like women i'd never heard of in second and third from switzerland and italy and then just kind of a collection of like road racers slash off-road specialists rounding out the top 10. Andrew, what were your big, there was a, there was a lot of like talk after the race, like this wasn't real gravel. Um, like for example, Vanderpool, I believe Vanderpool and Johnny Vermeesh were on road bikes, um, which to me is kind of a testament of how good the road bikes have gotten. A lot of people were dragging that saying like, like, well, it's not a real gravel course if you can ride a road bike. But I mean, they had, I think 30 millimeter tires in there and, th- and those are fast, but like they're fast and arrow, but then they're also really versatile. You can take them on a lot of different stuff. Um, but what, what was your takeaway, Andrew, as Mr. Gravel himself? Those bikes were stiff, but compliant. I, I think that that's, that's one key takeaway. And you're right, Spencer, I've been front running the, uh, the spirit of gravel market for quite a while. And I definitely want to talk about the protracted long-lasting and continuing today debate about the spirit of gravel that's been, gosh, it's been an omni-channel debate. One observation I had about results from the race, there seemed to be a home gravel advantage. If you look at the results in the women's race, you had, let's see here, you had four Italian women in the top 10 in the women's race. In the men's race, you had three Italian men in the top 10. I want to point out that collectively, 
we did predict the winners of both races. You did predict the winner of the men's race. I did predict the winner of the women's race in our picks on the spirit of gravel world championships preview episode. Um, so, I mean, other than that, the, I think the biggest story was how bad the TV or streaming coverage of the event was once again, almost unwatchable. They, they they appeared to miss the moment when the break happened. I think. Yeah, I couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah, that's not a very not a very important <laughs> detail. Like when the break happens, uh, the also the course itself. I read the UCI rules around specifications for courses, and while it was a non technical course for the most part, with very smooth gravel relative to the um, much vaunted American gravel standard. Uh, exported from the Flint Hills of Kansas, the course did have quite a few choke points. And that really seemed to be the deciding factor. And tactically, what seemed to happen was once that break got away, the roads were narrow enough that a lot of blocking happened. So I think negative racing was the real victor in this race. And the loser was definitely the spirit of gravel. Spencer, what thoughts did you have coming out of this inaugural gravel world championships? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, the, I think the big takeaway was the, the coverage was not great. And I think it's new. The UCI is the organizer, which is not, they're not race organizers. I mean, they're a governing body. Like I turned on Perry tours afterwards. It looked beautiful. Cause it's like, has an actual race organizer who hires helicopters and professional, uh, camera people to be on motorcycles. And you're like, wow, this is what a race should look like. Um, I was kind of confused watching Gravel World Championships, what was going on at any point in time. That wasn't great. Uh, yeah, the export didn't totally take because, like, think about the winner, Johnny Vermeesh, on the same trade team as Matthew Vanderpool, the favorite to win the race in the group behind. They're racing on different national teams, but the thing with these world championships, these guys are so, I guess, like, relatively highly paid on their trade teams. You're never going to just totally forget that allegiance. Like, Vanderpool's not going to chase down Vermeesh and then they go back to the team bus the next day and it's like, hey, what, what was that about, buddy? Um, especially because Vanderpool's going to want Vermeesh to work for him next year in the spring classics. So that just, I think it's hard. It's hard to have the same spirit. Like when you're out there at, at Unbound in Kansas or like uh, Belgian Waffle Ride in San Diego, like everyone's just racing against each other, at, you know, at least in theory. Um, and we just saw like a lot of the, the same kind of team politics muddle this up a little bit and perhaps like pervert the, the spirit of gravel, as you would say. But yeah, I mean, God, the, the route, the route was not as good as like Strata Bianchi. If we're being honest, like to me, that was a better, that's like a better mixed surface road race or even, uh, if you take it, because people were criticizing it for the lack of hills, but you think of like Trollo Bione, I think is the name of the race. I'm probably getting that wrong. The one in Brittany where there's not really many hills, but that's a very, that's a legitimately exciting, they call it a road race. Like it's technically classified as a road race, but it's really a gravel race that's kind of on old farm tracks in France. You know, that was a, that's a much better event than this gravel world championships were, in my opinion. And, you know, may, maybe there was more road than people thought, but it's still, as you say, there's a lot of choke points that was kind of deciding the race. Um, I think probably the big takeaway is it just showed like how strong some of these guys are. Like Daniel Oss, you think of as a career domestique. And when put up against like gravel racers, he just has a world-class engine. Like if he wanted to, he could, he would, he could go to unbound and win, you know, and it would probably dominate. So I think it just showed like the depth in professional road racing and just like how strong these guys are and, and and women in the case of uh, Pauline compared to like professional gravel racers. Did you happen to catch Dan Martin's comments on Twitter about how racing road racing <laughs> today? <laughs> I, this went straight into my folder of okay. old man yells at cloud. And I just kind of <laughs> skipped past it. But yeah, I think the quote was like, Dan Martin says racers today don't need to be smart. What was it? They like, basically they're dumb. What? what? Uh, so, so I said that more or less the outcomes of races are predictable. The racing is robotic and road racing has no soul. I just feel like soul and spirit are really trending right now. Keeping in mind, these athletes are not going to 
film a part in the next Teton Gravity Research ski movie, they're going to race their bikes. Like, what, I, I don't understand this dialogue about spirit and soul. It's his professional cycling where people are out there to win. Is, is this ever been a soulful endeavor, yeah, Spencer? And I thought this was a little rich because Dan Martin comes from what I think was the most soulless period of professional cycling, right? He, his peak was like 2010 to 2017 when Team Sky had the sport down to a science and would just grind people off their wheels. I thought Dan actually was kind of like a godfather of just racing to your power meter. And then now, I don't know, like think about Matthew Vanderpool at the Giro. The guy was going in breakaways that made no sense. He was blowing the race up early on. If anything, think about Tadej Pogacar. The guy could just dedicate his life to winning tours, but instead he just kind of does races that he feels like doing. If anything, I feel like racing now is more soulful if we could put a definition on what the heck that actually means. But I thought it was an odd comment and I thought it was factually incorrect. Like cycling's never been more exciting, at least in my lifetime, than it is right now. So I don't know what he was talking about. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I did a quick audit in the week following the Gravel World Championships. And at one point, Velo News, Cycling Tips, Cycling News, and Cycling Weekly each had at least five articles on the front page of their sites about or related to the spirit of gravel, either from staff writers or, as I'm sure you saw, Spencer, there were just a slew of essays from professional athletes who participated in these races about the spirit of gravel. And gosh, they said some interesting things. Did you happen to catch any of those pieces? No, I think that was, I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful to those publications or those writers, but I just didn't need to read an essay on the spirit of gravel did, did you dig through them give them a deep audit well i think you do need to read an essay on, on the spirit of gravel it's going to be well, my essay which is yes. coming out soon uh, well um, thought out and and not reactionary to a strange <laughs> road race that just happened in the veneto region yeah no i'm joking of course you can can read or consume whatever you want spencer as you know um but yeah i thought you know, I think anything that kind of stirs the pot and creates uh, a high tension narrative is actually positive for the sport. So uh, we're joking around about the spirit of gravel, but it's it's a debate that has people riled up, and it is interesting to see the voices of all these different professional athletes in the mix and to see what they have to say. It's a lot of the of what we've heard before the you know, gosh, we're at a world championships, but I'm not getting a bacon or, or beer hand up, you know, what's, is this really gravel? Like those types of comments were, yeah, we were there to race the world championships, but at the end of the day, it was all about that, uh, that glass of wine waiting for me at the end and that charcuterie plate. It's a lot of that type of stuff. And, you know, a lot of commentary about how the course was not good or was not sufficient. I do think that the course definitely should have been longer with more opportunities for passing. And I think that we also have to examine the size of, um, the size of teams in these events. It just, if you have numerical superiority on narrow roads, it's just too easy to, to block is what I think. And I don't think that's interesting or good for the sport. Yeah. And I think this is where the Hills help. You know, if you, just think of Strada Bianchi like it's just a very hard course so you can't you can't just sit at the front and block because the the hills break the event up if you have the legs to be at the front it makes it more democratic I guess is what I'm trying to say where you can just get to the front and you can make the race if you have the strength you can't just have a team the problem is if it's flat and technical and has pinch points as you're saying a, a team with numbers can just get on the front and park themselves there and let a break right off the front of the road. So, yeah, it, I, I think you could maybe just keep the team sizes the same if you made it more selective, especially early on. It made it less about, I think there was like a pinch point after 500 meters is what I was reading, which seems a little yeah. strange. I, I don't totally understand that decision from the organizers. Yeah, I don't either. There was something similar at the Cross Country Marathon World Championships, which happened recently as well. Apparently, they started the race and then they very quickly ran them through something akin to a cyclocross course before they proceeded on to the rest of the race. That 
created a you know a single file totally strung out group and then it made it impossible for anyone to move up not much of a debate though within that community about there is some debate about the course but there are a lot of team tactics being used in that specific event where teams are bringing riders just to do pace work early on who then get shelled you know much as we would see on climbs at the tour de france and similar events i did want to note that i think one of the more interesting and distinctive voices in the dialogue around gravel has been jeff kabush who you know longtime mountain bike pro uh now gravel pro also cross country and enduro mountain bike pro and he's like been quite the provocateur throughout this gravel season he was not invited to participate in the lifetime series he didn't make the cut and if you recall spencer some of the criteria for inclusion in that series writers had to apply they did look at race results but they also asked writers to submit all all of their information about their social media handles reach and Clearly, the organization was thinking about how the participants could be amplifiers of the marketing reach of that series, which savvy and also, you know, off-putting to some writers who might have been really talented, but not perhaps not younger or without massive social media reach. But and anyway, I think they wanted you to be also like positive to yeah, totally the company, which yeah. I can understand if I was a CEO of Lifetime, I, I understand where they're coming from, but it makes it a little weird. You think, well, yeah, you can just exclude Kabush, who's one of the best gravel riders from your event. I, I, I thought it was anti-competitive. Um, didn't quite agree with the decision. Yeah. And, you know, it is something we see happen in a lot of other sports, particularly fully vertically integrated sports, such as the UFC owned by Endeavor. But, you know, if someone mouths off to dana white repeatedly they tend to not get good fights and then over time they're ushered out of the ufc and into lesser promotions of which there are quite a few but the ufc you know has bought most of their competitors at this point in time much as lifetime has rolled up all of the marquee gravel events in the united states um but yeah kabush had some interesting comments in advance of the event i think it was on I think it was on Twitter, possibly. It's a very long thread, but one of the points that he made, and I think some people are aware of this, but not everyone, is that the UCI apparently initially tried to work with event promoters in the United States to have this inaugural Gravel World Championships in the United States and on, you know, in some of the regions or on some of the terrain that we more closely associate with the spirit of gravel and that was rejected, I guess, by the American gravel community. And then, then there was all the subsequent criticism of the course in Italy as not being gravelly enough. Um, so Kabush had some hot takes on that that were, you know, pretty spot on. I actually, so you're saying the American community rejected having the world championships in the U.S. I actually think that's a good. I think this gravel world championships, honestly, for the gravel community is nothing but trouble like they should just stay as far away from this as possible you don't it's the same thing with like the ioc like track and field is stunted as a sport because it's so tethered to the olympics like you don't want you never as a general rule of thumb you never want swiss bureaucrats who don't bring any value to the table involved in your business so gravel like the fact that the Swiss-based UCI, which doesn't offer anything of value, is just taking your name, basically, Gravel, trying to put it on an event that makes money from, and, and the way they make money is they go to the Veneto and they say, pay us $5 million to host a world championships here. And the Veneto says, that sounds pretty good. Here's 5 million bucks. And they say, this is pretty cool. And they put it on an event that probably costs them $50,000 to put on. And then they go back to Switzerland and they, they go to their, they have this awesome office with like an indoor velodrome. It's a good life. I mean, if you work at the CI, congrats for you. That's great. Not great for anyone else because they just extract value from these sports. So if you're gravel, like you're doing awesome on your own, like the Belgium waffle ride, 
Unbound, Steamboat Gravel, this is, you're great. Like you have weight lines for your events. You do not need the UCI to come in and try to carve out their profit. So just, yeah, I think that was the right decision. And like, let them stay on their own and, you know, hopefully like wither and die on the vine because you don't want the UCI coming in the gravel. You know, in my humble opinion, they're nothing but trouble. So I, I think that was the right decision. Like the American gravel should just stay on its own. I mean, but here's my next question. So like Belgian waffle rides, for those who don't know, started as like a mixed surface, kind of a road race in San Diego that started going off on some like back roads, some single track, very popular, was very hard to get into. So they, I think they were bought by Lifetime, expanded out. Apologies if you weren't bought by Lifetime and I'm misrepresenting that, but I think you are. Um, And now they have, let's just say three or four different locations throughout the the US. I think they're going to seven next year. You know, do you see them ever expanding? And like, so A, my, my first question, do you think this kind of dilutes the Belgian waffle ride brand? Like, is it a mistake to expand out to seven? And do you think they should expand into Europe? Like, or do you think that's next for them? Yeah, I think they'll definitely expand into Europe. And as to whether they're going to dilute the brand, uh, I've reached out to some people because I actually am really curious what the writer experience was like and what the level of talent was at the Belgian Waffle Ride Lawrence. And I also would like to take this opportunity, Spencer, to get you to publicly commit to riding the Belgian Waffle Ride Lawrence with me next year because I believe as people who are from Kansas, you and me, Missouri, respectively, we owe a debt to that region to, <laughs> to show up and elevate the event. I, I wanted to do it this year. I was at a wedding. This, it was last weekend. Um, I, would, I would love to do it next year. I just have to get a, I need the right bike. It's a very hard course. Um, I just saw it was 89% unpaved. So I might just be on a mountain bike for it, but I will definitely do it next year. We got to do it together and then do yeah, a podcast. I think we should do it together. I will see if I can secure a discreet motor for my bike. I don't think that I want to ride an e-bike, but I think to keep up with you, even with the year of training, I may need some kind of assistance at, uh, at that event. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's a question of whether as you expand the number of events, you know, I think there are two things to consider here. One, there's the completer or participant or age group aspect of it. And as these events proliferate, I think the expectations of promoters are that gravel will, it will be like mountain biking in the nineties forever. And we saw how that story ended. And the, the beginning of the end really was the arrival of the UCI and those first mountain bike world championships in Vail, where Ned Overend won the cross-country world championship title and Greg Herbold won the downhill title. So Americans took both of the uh, titles in the men's races at the inaugural mountain bike world championships. And then like over time, the scene just kind of imploded because the professional racing side of it completely moved to Europe. Norba, no disrespect to the athletes out there racing. And I don't even know what the equivalent of Norba is today or who the governing body is of mountain bike racing in the United States, cross country mountain bike racing, but it's not, uh, it's coming back. We've got Nika, but it, uh, has the opportunity to bloom and blossom and boom again. It's not quite at the level it was in the nineties. And like the level elevated generally, like the top yeah. mountain bikers in the world now are amazing, but it, it elevated centralized within the UCI moved to Europe. And then, yeah, it's kind of left, left as a husk in the U.S. And at one point, as you're saying, it was a proud, strong scene. Yeah. And with gravel, I think what's going to happen is we see the introduction of more and more events. People, they only have so many resources. They only have so much time. And I think there's going to be a tipping point where we start to <clears throat> reach where demand starts to get diluted because people will be going to too many different events. And then over time as more and more promoters enter and try to capitalize on the pinup demand that exists right now. We'll see what happens. I mean, I think one trend that's fueling the gravel boom that's not going away is just distracted driving. It's 
you know, until cars can actually drive themselves, which I think will be a good thing for cyclists in aggregate, probably. I think people are going to, people who ride are going to gravitate towards being off-road in places where there is no traffic or lower traffic. That's a huge part of gravel. So I think that's part of it. Another mitigating factor to consider, and I'm forgetting the name of the event in Vermont, but there was the death of a rider at an event in Vermont, and they haven't disclosed what happened, but it appears that the rider uh, had a crash and died on the course. And I think as more things like that happen, which is inevitable, if you've participated in gravel events, if you're not at the sharp end, if you're not the rider at the very front, quite frequently you are, you're just like riding into stuff that you can't see, or, you know, maybe you come into a blind turn, there's loose gravel, you know, just the, possibility of of getting hurt has always been there we just haven't seen it happen very often as more of those things happen i think liability also will become a bigger issue and that's going to start to dampen the spirit of gravel a bit as well yeah and did you i mean i like obviously it's a little bit different because rimco evan was at the belgium off ride lawrence last year um got a ton of press Happens this year. I felt like I I can't even find the results. Honestly, I'm, I've been searching around looking for them um, during this episode. I can't find the results for that event. I thought the crowds looked a little thin. Lawrence is oddly, you would think it would be like the home of cycling in in Kansas, but it feels like it is just hard to get people. Maybe because it's home, it's football season, and it's home of the University of Kansas. You can't get people that excited about cycling there. Um, just did not seem to have like big crowds downtown. Do you think that's a risk? I mean, as you're saying, you people have so many resources, you stretch the events and then like in five years, Belgian Waffle Ride Lawrence is just kind of turned into like a zombie road race. Like we see, like there's all these road races in Colorado, like the Superior Morgul road race. It's like a former world championships course used to be a massive road race. It just gets smaller and smaller and smaller every year. That would be my fear for U.S. gravel, that it just kind of doesn't maintain that interest because it spreads itself so thin. Yeah, I think there's a possibility of dilution of demand. And I also can't find the results, which is not awesome. Um, Somebody know, won. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure who won the men's race. I know that Rebecca Faringer won the women's race as a big victory for her. But... uh yeah, I can't even find the results, so it's tough to comment. But uh, I did watch Kerry Werner's YouTube video about the race. My sense was um, probably not the same level of talent that you've seen at other Belgian waffle events thus far. And you know, part of what really draws people to the original Belgian waffle ride, which is in San Diego County, is... You know, just like the history of the event, that specific course, can you just like drop that into another location and then turn it into an iconic event? They're counting on that. I think they do have a strong track record, but, you know, the original SoCal event is really the premier event in their series. They've tried to do the same thing in Emporia. Like they have a variety of gravel races that take place there now, but, you know, there's only one unbound, right? Yeah. And, as you're saying with the original Belgium off ride, it's, I think it's in San Diego in like April. So that's an easy sell to a lot of the country, you know, cause it, it sucks here in April. Like it's always snowy and cold. So it's like, Oh, I could go to San Diego and have a nice time. It's just kind of a built in appeal there. Um, where going to Lawrence in October maybe is a harder sell for me personally. Spencer, you're deeper into F1 than me, so correct my pronunciation here if it's wrong. But Valtteri Botas. Oh, I was just going to bring this up. I yeah. Think it's like, Val- yeah, yeah. I think you, you pretty much nailed it, but he has his own gravel race in Finland. Is this correct? He has his own gravel race in Finland. Canyon has picked him up as a sponsored rider. And one of the things that we've seen is the big manufacturers are doing an amazing job of leveraging personalities within other disciplines or celebrities uh, to elevate their brands through gravel racing, like pretty brilliant sponsorship for Canyon there. But yeah, Valtteri Botas, 
raced at the Belgian Waffle Rally. I got a couple of texts about like, hey, did you see that Valtteri Bottas won Belgian Waffle Ride Lawrence? It's like, whoa, that's insane. <laughs> like this guy, you know, he, did he beat Pete Stetna? What did he do? I went, dug in the results and he won the 40 mile ride, which I don't know what, what is that even called? I'm looking at the, it's called the Wanna. Okay. It's the, the Wanna ride. So he won a 40 mile ride with 1600 feet of climbing. You know, even if, if you're a professional athlete coming from another sport, uh, you know, you don't have USA cycling saying, Hey, you need to do 10 cat five crits before you can cat up to cat four. I, I think that this is like a real sandbag type of move. Um, I'd like for him to cat up. What do you think? <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. In my spirit, in my heart of hearts, yes. But I also get the appeal of doing the shorter ride since he is, he is a professional athlete in the middle of his season. <laughs> like, but, I think but I'm paid like $10 million a year to drive a race car. So the fact that he's skimping on his bike racing, I'm probably okay with. I think that if you're a like one of the best in the world in a sport with what they have less than 25 athletes get a seat in an F1 car. I think it's only 20. Okay, 20. And you're showing up at this event, you're doing pretty much the easiest distance. You know what? Maybe let somebody else win. I'm not sure that you I'm not sure that you were like, "Hey, I'm going to destroy this field at the 40-mile one a Belgium waffle ride in Lawrence. I think maybe you let somebody else take that. You do a, you do the classy thing, the Evanapol, uh, Sagan, Daniel Oss approach where you're like, yeah, I'm here to make party. You know, why so serious? Someone else can win the race. He's a competitor. It's in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe, maybe do at least the 75 mile ride. I mean, come on. 40 does seem a little short. Um, how long do you have his do you have his race pulled up on Strava? I I don't have his race pulled up on Strava, but I'm this to me this is like Kipchoge shows up at like your turkey trot and destroys the field. <laughs> like, come on, man. Well, he is a race car driver. I I do think the 40 seems a little short. I I'd love to get Botas on the podcast so he could defend himself. Um I actually can't believe we missed this. That would have been we could have raced against him. Put him in his place. Oh man. Um, I'm trying to see how long this took him because 40 sounds short, two and a half hours. I think he could have done the 70 probably, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he could have done the 70. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Uh, you're bringing up good points. He does. He kind of, it's, it's a pattern of behavior, uh, to be honest with you. He does kind of go around to these gravel races and always does the shortest distance possible and does seem to win every time. Yeah, it's time to cat up Valtteri. I mean, if he were out on a group ride in Boulder and people were aware of this result, don't you think that he'd be getting to like, hey, it's time to cat up? I think, yeah, you'd probably have to hide this. Um, yes, I, I don't. It's funny. This is like a reaction. I think in Boulder, if you win, it's like not you can't tell people about it. And he could win like a tour stage. And it's like, well, God, maybe it was. It wasn't the people would be like, oh, it wasn't the strongest field that day. Uh, <laughs> like Tyler Ferrar, that I don't know. I think Cab had a drop chain, so it's not even a real win that you could like <laughs> tell us about. <laughs> um, and so one thing I wanted to run past you before I have to run. I've got to hang out with college and the boys. But National Cycling League announced that big a million dollar prize purse um, with this inflation though is that even going to matter next year no that's not the question but it, this is like a cycling league based in the u.s vaguely team centered around geography what what's your take here i mean i the one thing that stuck out to me is 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 this a thing that cycling should have teams centered around regions because like college sports frankly a lot of the like I think like the the most watched events in the U.S. outside the Super Bowl sporting events are college sporting events, and the level is often not that good. And the reason they can get away with that is because people will root for whatever you're rooting for laundry because you've like grown up around a region and you have some affinity for it. Is this something cycling should pursue? I am really excited about the possibility of what the NCL could create in the United States. And would I like to see 
more bike racing and more highly competitive bike racing in the United States and something that potentially inspires a new generation of riders to want to go ride their bicycles on the road? Yes, absolutely. So I'm really excited about the possibility of what this might create. I love that there are some really heavy hitters behind this project and that they're bringing serious prize money and that there's parity between men's and women's uh, prize purses for the series. So I think that's all fantastic. I think the questions that I have, Spencer, are very similar to the points that you just raised. I want to learn more specifically about how this regional team structure will function. It's not clear to me, do the writers need to be from the region where the team is located or, you know, is this like uh, other professional sports where, you know, writers or not writers, uh, athletes may live wherever in the off season. And then they're in, for example, Kansas city during the football season to play uh, for the NFL team there. So I want to learn a bit more <laughs> we, we about that. Have the rights to say their name. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big NFL fan. So, um, I, I don't follow the sport very closely. I do find it to be an interesting sport. But the and another question that I have, looking at the current state of criterium racing in the United States, there just is a vast disparity between uh, the budgets and the teams who are actually winning and everyone else. And my question is, is there is there actually some way to level this out and like is there enough talent for there to be a variety of winners um you know even in F1 where you have highly dominant athletes taking most of the races and winning the overall and that's you know that's a combination of talent and the the machines that they're that they're driving but is that going to be interesting because i think one of the big challenges with criterium racing right now is that there's one team that wins. There are a handful of riders who win repeatedly. And I'm not sure that there's, are there, you know, dozens of riders who potentially could win races or, or not? Mm, yeah, that's probably, that is the big concern. I mean, cause there's Legion, they offer money. People like, I think it's really the only team you can like get paid to race on. Uh, there was a team, Best Buddies Racing. I'm still not sure what Best Buddies is, um, which potentially indicates a flaw in the company and the marketing. Uh, but they're folding at the end of the at the end of this year. They had some really good riders, um, and then there's this random like 19 year old kid, Luke uh, Lamparty, I think his name is, and he'll just show up and win. He's like a races for a small British team on the road. He he just road races and does really well. Um, in Europe, and then he'll just show up and win the biggest crits in the U.S. Which showing your point, it's, he's illustrating the depth of talent is not fantastic. And yeah, it's currently it's centered on one team. I guess if, if you were being really optimistic about the NCL, you would say this is what they're trying to solve. They're going to try to make it more profitable to race in the U.S. Thus, you're going to get greater talent. I'm just, I'm not sure. Like, let's just say Criterion Racing, for example. Um, if you want to make an awesome weekend in a small-sized U.S. city, like Tulsa Tough, fantastic. Like, that's a fun event. That's the biggest event they have all year. Even in Denver, like, Denver has a really good crit, the Littleton crit. No one, no one really in Denver knows that it exists. It's too big. There's too much going on. You have, like, the Broncos. It just gets lost in the shuffle. I mean, you really have to have a specific goal and, you're, it, and Tulsa Tufts never going to have amazing TV viewing, even if the writing, like I was there when there was pretty good competition with like UHC and um, other pro teams like Elbows, they had Travis McCabe and Eric Marcotte, both who went on to race the super high level. Um, and it was not getting great TV viewing. You're just, you're, you're never going to be able to like scale it into a, not, I wouldn't say a real business because Tulsa Tough makes money, but just it's never going to be like a massively scalable professional league that does massive business. It just how you have to be happy with it being a good regional event that people get excited about and it turns a little bit of profit every year. That's my concern for the NCL that maybe they're expecting too much out of what should be a super focused thing where you have 10 crits around the country and small cities and they're awesome in that region, but maybe they're not national events. 
Yeah, I think a potential counter example is the Revolution Track Series. And I believe it's just in the UK, but I, I actually don't know. So maybe that bespeaks the opportunity for further improvement there. I've watched the Revolution Track Series, I think, through, gosh, I'm trying to think which of one of the five subscriptions that you need to have to watch uh, cycling events is it on. It might be on GCN Plus, but have you checked that out? No, it's like cycling track or like running track. Yeah, it's cycling. It's track cycling. I have not checked it out. Okay, so it's a pro track cycling league and they, you know, it's built for television and they make it interesting visually. The commentary is excellent. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge tracky, but we did. I lived in LA for a long time and we had the Home Depot velodrome down there in Carson. So I would go watch the races and my coach, David Brenton was a former track racer. So I had some interest in it as a spectator. What that series has done is it's, uh, told the stories of some of the personalities behind track racing and many of whom have interesting stories. So like the narrative component is interesting. You understand the stakes. So I think from a storytelling point of view, if it's executed in a way that really brings the athletes to life and like takes us behind the sunglasses and the helmets could be quite interesting. And what I like about Criterium Racing is relatively simple to follow compared to a Grand Tour, for example. Can you make that compelling television? I think from what we've seen so far from USA Cycling and you know the Crit Series events that have been streamed, it's typically not awesome, but I think the potential is there. So it's, you know, I have high hopes and hopefully, uh, hopefully it turns out well and is really well executed. It would be great for cycling in the United States. My big concern is, is there any example? The reason this works in like ball sports is because of the regional affinity of like a lesser product, you know, because really, if you're really good at riding a bike, you're going to be in the tour. You're going to be on the world tour. You're not going to be doing the Revolution Track Series. Is there any example of like lower level sporting events actually getting enough viewership to turn a profit, to like make it a viable right. business? Like, it's like, are we tuning in to watch it be like MLS players do their like drills? You know, it's like, it's not a full game, but it's like a specific skill that sometimes you would lose using a full game. Like, I just worry we're we're going into a world where like Criterion Racing had a, was a standalone business in like the eighties because we just couldn't watch stuff. Like you couldn't watch the Giro d'Italia in the U.S. until ten years ago, but now information is so seamless. It's winner takes all in these sports. Like you're just you're going to watch the NFL. You're not going to watch the German Football League. Like you're it's just all consolidating into the top 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 tier because everyone has access to viewing that. And it makes it really hard for lower lower level leagues who aren't college affiliated or region affiliated to survive. Yeah. And setting aside the regional aspect of it, which I think is a very fair point to make, there's also the conundrum that just within the cycling community, as road racing has become less and less popular, you know, I've tuned into a number of these streams of criterium races in the past two years and it's really similar to the experience i've had with watching cyclocross streams which you know now you can get those events on flow sports or gcm plus but you used to have to watch them on like a live youtube stream those live streams will tell you how many people are watching i'm just wondering how many people in the united states currently are engaged with and have an interest in criterium racing i would think it's probably less than 10,000 people follow Criterium Racing in the United States right now. Um, and can you generate demand for an area of the sport where there's currently such a low level of interest? And, you know, a lot of people follow Legion specifically, and they're very interested in that team. Um, and they get covered very frequently in the news. They have they do a great job with press and marketing. But are people actually interested weekend to weekend in what's happening in Criterium Racing? Like Spencer, what do you think the size of that audience is that actually number one 
knows what criterium racing is, and number two, has an interest in what's actually happening within that discipline of the sport right now. Yeah, it maybe is higher than we think. I'm just trying to think of my own anecdotal examples. Like my wife and my aunt probably both follow Legion on Instagram and watch those little video clips they post, which are pretty compelling. And so they're they're I guess they're in the orbit. They would know about Criterion Racing. They would know about Legion. They know some of the players. Are they going to sit down and watch an event? That's I mean that's like a whole nother bridge to cross. But I'm just even thinking, I think like in 20 last, last year, my wife and I watched like the final day of Tulsa tough on the stream. It was actually pretty fun. So it's just hard though. Cause you know, we watch a lot of cycling and like you can understand the nuance of the event. I think if, if you're just a regular Joe off the street and you're like, so this is like semi-professional bike racing. Um, you know, the Legion brand helps a lot, gets a lot of people into it, but God, I mean, it, it just generally, if we just step back for a second, I think people are shocked by the low live viewing numbers for like a Criterium stream. You're like only a thousand people. Um, I think people really underestimate how hard it is to get people to watch anything. Like a lot of NBA games, it's like, wow, there might be me and five other people watching this game. Like there's ostensibly no one watching this thing. Um, or like the Daily Show gets 336,000 viewers every night and that's considered like people are shocked like wow that's not that many it's like that is a lot i mean that for in the modern media landscape to get 336 people 336,000 people sitting down to watch something live is a ton i don't think people quite understand how hard it is like 10,000 viewers live viewers is very difficult if you go on instagram live you have a super famous person yeah, like Nicki Minaj going live for an event and she'll have like 15,000 viewers. And that's why those Twitch streamers make $30 million a year because they're the only people in the current landscape who can actually pull in over a million people to watch a single event outside of sporting events, which is why the NFL and NBA can command such high viewing fees because it's essentially the only thing that anyone is going to watch at this point. Yeah. So Spencer, I've got a tea time with college and the boys here in a minute, but I wanted to point out that in your example, I mean, you are a former professional criterium racer. So it's not shocking to me that your wife and your aunt have some interest in criterium racing. I also used to race criteriums, which is part of why I'm interested in them. Like I loved competing in them. I found, I found them to be one of the most fun forms of bike racing to participate in. Um, I think that that's probably who the current fan of Criterium Racing or per person watching the sport would be. Like, I think the potential viewer today is probably someone who has done some form of Criterium Racing and their friends and family who might have an awareness. Uh, I do think that part of what's going to need to happen for the NCL to be successful is to get other people who are like, for example, someone who may have done a gravel event who's like, yeah you know what, I'm never going out to the Dominguez Hills office park to do a CBR race. Um, you need to get them interested in becoming a fan of the sport. I think that is possible, but I do think that that's the challenge right now. Yeah, I, I will say the one big caveat there is in person. Like you go to Tulsa Tough, the people of Tulsa that are viewing the event are not criterium racers for, in a former life. They're just wow, this is cool and fast. Like there's a kinetic energy that comes across in person that does not come across viewing, which is why I tend to believe these are like better in-person businesses than they are broadcast-based businesses, which is not awesome news for the NCL to hear because the only way you can really scale their revenues is to get broadcast fees. But I mean, if we're being honest, I think that how many how many bike races actually turn a profit with with viewing, not viewing revenues? What am I trying to say? Um, selling their TV rights, it's really the Tour de France, the Spring Classics, and the Giro. Everyone else takes a loss. Like, you, we could buy Criterium du Dauphiné viewership rights for like $5,000, <laughs> like stream it on our on our podcast channel you know the, these events are not making money with with tv rights they're making money by convincing the host towns to pay them tons of money to run the event through there unless the ncl thinks that 
Sacramento is going to give them a million dollars to host event there. I, I struggle to see a, an awesome business there unless you really cultivate local sponsors and you make it like a must see, like must attend event in your local city. And then you can have vendors there selling food, beer, um, like a look, I don't think of like a local hospital chain as your title sponsor, but these are small businesses. These are not big, sexy, um, you know, we're going to sell for a 10 multiple type of thing. Yeah. And if it were in Boulder, you could have a stand selling frites or bidons. You, you could, I mean, but this is, this actually gets into the, it gets even trickier because you think, wow, Boulder, a lot of people interested in cycling. Let's do a crit there. I bet it wouldn't be very well attended because people are almost too interested in cycling. Be like, well, I watched the tour. Why would I go watch a bunch of lesser riders race around? So it, it, it's a real, it's almost like a minefield that you have to navigate as a American based race promoter. And if it were in Boulder, you might also run into <clears throat> ultra runners, sky runners and equestrians wanting the rights to go use that street instead of cyclists. <laughs> yes. Yes. I just ran into this issue last night. It's, it's competitive out there on the trails. Yeah. And if that happens, I say, just show your bidon. <laughs> and, and you got to pour it on your brakes to keep it from overheating. Uh, yeah. A lot Eddie Merckx. It's important to refer to as many aspects of your cycling life and your equipment by whatever they're uh, foreign language equivalent is I find. Yeah. It's a beautiful fall day here. I do need to go pull on my gilet All right. and, uh, get out there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You say vest, people don't know what you're talking about. They don't not right. here in not here in mid coast, Maine. Gilet only. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Okay. Thanks. Take care, Spencer. All right. Bye. Bye.